are listening to a podcast from The National. Welcome everyone to the Business Extra podcast. It's getting towards the end of the year. I always feel it's a good time to do a little gazing into our crystal balls and see what the future might look like. I'm not talking about 2018, although that's going to be interesting, but much further down the line, particularly with regards to the future of energy and the future of mobility. So OPEC put out their uh, world oil outlook today, including forecasts, well, energy outlook, actually. They put forecasts that include that renewables will see the fastest rate of annual growth, around 6.8% per year. Although they believe that the annual share of the energy mix is only going to be 5.4% by 2040 for renewables because of a low starting base. Now, OPEC obviously has a lot of skin in the oil game, um, but they're trying to look at the overall outlook for what the energy industry might look like. A lot of uh, other forecasts, such as from the EIA, are a lot more bullish about how much renewables will, uh, will take up of the energy mix. However, it seems like that we still haven't quite reached that momentum uh, that's needed for renewables to really pick up. Coincidentally, this week, uh, the Abu Dhabi International Petroleum Exhibition and Conference started in the capital. It's a big gathering in town, a lot of energy executives out there, a lot of people debating about the various aspects of what could be moving energy going forward now, in the future, what has been up up until 2017, of course. Um, I was at another high-level gathering uh, last weekend, the World Economic Forum's uh, meeting in Dubai. I spoke to Alan Asperu-Guzik. Now, he's from Harvard. Harvard University and he leads a theoretical physical chemistry research group. Yes, a physical chemistry research group. I had to look that up as well. Um, in fact, when I spoke to him, it felt like I was having to hang on for dear life. The guy is so smart. Um, but you'll listen to his interview and he's talking about how uh, his group is at the forefront of developing new technologies related to clean energy, particularly involving large scale computational screening uh, for the design of new organic materials. It's next level stuff. And uh, it really shows that the next big breakthrough, the cutting edge of energy will probably be in storage. Um, But anyway, you go ahead and listen. Uh, This is me and Alan speaking uh, down at the WEF in Dubai on Saturday. So, Alan, uh, thanks for joining me. It's great to have you here. Um, I'm down with you at the World Economic Forum Global Council meetings in uh, Dubai. You're here specifically to talk about um, a, a particular topic that is close to the research that you're doing at Harvard, correct? That's correct. And what exactly are you talking about here with with other experts from around the world so mustafa i'm thinking about uh, how to can how can we get the materials for tomorrow today there's materials that we would love to have available materials that allow us to filter water at four, four times less the cost that we can filter it right now or harvest solar energy maybe two three times cheaper or perhaps uh, store the world's energy in a very inexpensive organic molecule derived from oil these type of challenges require to think about how to go from the discovery of materials in a slow traditional process. Discovering materials in a traditional process, you can think about it as cooks in the kitchen. They are testing something, if they like it, they add more salt, they try it again, they test it with the customers. Very slow process, if you actually look at the chemistry laboratory nowadays, you will see the chemists kind of like little cooks. Um, I'm envisioning a new type of chemistry and materials laboratory. In this laboratory, computers search the immense materials and chemical space for exciting molecules and exciting candidates. Helped by artificial intelligence and robotics, they actually make them, test them really quickly, and it comes back in a cycle. So we like to think about this idea 
as a new types of Moore's law, a Moore's law for scientific discovery. So that is what I'm passionate about right now. I'm passionate about rethinking the entire concept of the chemical laboratory or the materials laboratory and making it into, into this streamlined tool that helps us advance uh, technological solutions to try to help the world because we have no time. So you lead a research team at Harvard that is working on different materials related to clean energy, related to water. Um, if, I, if you talk about Moore's law, and, and, and which relates to typically to semiconductor chips, and I think about silicon as being such a, a sort of disruptive element that was created, what kind of materials um, are you working on right now? Yeah, I'm excited about one technology that we are developing at Harvard with Mike Assis and Roy Gordon, two of my collaborators, which is a technology that's trying to solve a problem that we barely talk about. We always talk about production of energy, okay? Well, guess what? If we really want to have a renewable energy transition, uh, or we put a lot of renewables in the mix, there's a new element that has never done at scale in humanity, which is storing such an energy. So we can produce a lot of energy, but imagine the amount of energy storage that we need to install to, for example, run our houses at night if you just run by solar. So how do you do that? Well, to go to that level, you need to think about an extremely inexpensive battery. Okay, so it's not the battery that you have in your iPhone or a Samsung phone. The reason is that those batteries are optimized for energy density. You want to watch as many YouTube videos as you can and use a lot of energy, check out a lot of Facebook, and that will use a lot of energy, and you want it to be lightweight. There's a different consideration when you want to think about massive energy storage. You want it to be safe. You want it to be inexpensive. And therefore, we at Harvard introduced a technology that is called organic flow battery. There were flow batteries before, but they use metals. So let me explain to you what is a flow battery, and then I'll tell you why organic is great. So a flow battery is, a, imagine a huge water tank, the size of the oil tanks you might drive around in Abu Dhabi. Okay, you might see these huge oil tanks that are used to store oil temporarily. Imagine them now, instead of filled with oil, filled with water. And in that water, you have a powder that is derived from oil that we like to call a quinone. It's a dye. You can use it you know, to dye your shoes, to dye your pants. You, you can use it. Biology, biological systems use that molecule as well. Well, you put those molecules in water, and now you flow them to a system that, that can store energy in them or re remove energy from them. And that is what is called a flow battery. So in that context, we want to find more and more different type of quinones as related molecules that are better and better at storing energy. That's an example of something that we're really excited about and we want to accelerate to help the planet. Yeah. So you say water, but water itself is a scarce resource in, in many ways. So if, okay, if, if we're moving from metals-based uh, batteries and, and uh, the kind of materials that we've been using now to more organic, as you're saying, then how do we ensure that we have enough of the organic materials uh, to do what you're envisaging? Very good question. So the water is not really a problem, okay? Uh, we, we, we don't need supermassive amounts of water. It could even be salt water. We're exploring even the possibility of doing this in salt water. So it's not necessarily the case that the water is a problem. But yes, the powder that you add, the little chemical, should be extremely inexpensive to make. One or two synthetic steps out of raw oil. You take a fraction of oil, you distill it, for example, anthracines, 
You take that from all refineries that we that we have in countries like mine, Mexico, or countries like yours, the United Arab Emirates. But now you add a value added. You convert in a in a big petrochemical plant one of the fractions of oil, and instead of burning it, right, you make it this energy storage molecule that can last 10 to 30 years, and you put it inside of the flow battery, and use it to store energy, right? So we'll need a lot of it. But if we all, as a world together, build these petrochemical plants to make it, it's a much more productive use of oil, perhaps, than burning it. And I understand we need to burn it now. But that will be something that we're talking about here because this is a council for the future. So I think in the future, we will convert our oil into energy storage molecules. So we talk about in the UAE a lot about a future beyond oil, a future when, you know, we're not so dependent on the hydrocarbons for our revenue and for funding a lot of the growth that has been done up till now. But from what you're saying is that the, the kind of innovations that are being worked on right now um, still require mm. having access to hydrocarbons, which, which, which sounds puzzling sometimes. Yeah, but you have to, you know, the more and more you extract hydrocarbon, the more its price comes up. Um, so we're going to have to leave a lot of it on the ground. And that one that we leave on the ground, we can convert into a battery. Even if it's a little bit more expensive to extract, it's going to be worth it. So I do believe that humanity will transition into renewable energy before running out of oil. So we'll have that oil to make plastics, to make all sorts of materials. In this particular case, our energy storage. So I wouldn't be so worried about that. And worst comes to worst, we make it with algae. We go to biosynthesis. But from what we understand, or we think at Harvard, we will have enough oil to, to, to pump it out and still make it our energy storage. So it is not that oil is bad, it's, or coal is bad, actually, it's, it's how we use it. It's actually a great resource, and we will be using it for hundreds of years. We just want to make sure that we have a sustainable way of using it, so everybody will benefit. The companies that extract it and transform it into value-added products, and the consumers and us that we're going to have a better environment. And what kind of collaboration do institutions like Harvard have with the private sector, the big energy companies that obviously have an interest in being at the forefront of any new innovation that, that is potentially disrupting? I mean, I know you told me you want to disrupt chemistry, but also you're going to be disrupting uh, the energy sector too. We would love to talk to them. Um, I personally have worked with... Um, I also have a project on display technology. I work with one of the largest manufacturers of cell phones in the world. I already mentioned it. Um, I also, we also work with battery companies. We work with wind companies. So we worked, I, I have to say, no, we have not worked with a battery company, with wind company. Uh, so we have talked to many. <laughs> the point is, at Harvard, in many other universities across the world, uh, we're extremely open to talking to industry to actually help together to, to solve problems. And sometimes what we do is also found startups. So we're founding a startup called Kebotics, which is robotics in chemistry. That's, that's where the name is Chemistry Botics. And that startup that spins out of my lab would love to have investment from, from the major corporate venture capital so that we actually have you know, um, strategic investors from oil companies, from materials companies, so that we actually live in that ecosystem. So academia, uh, in the bot bottom line, is that in the next 10, 20, 30 years, I believe that scientists have to realize that solving problems that matter to the world is going to be imperative. Number two, companies will have to find out that working with academia is very important. And this is one of the things that we're talking here a lot in the World Economic Forum, multi-stake discussions. So you are in the media sector yourself. 
that's a fantastic place to be right right now in this world mm-hmm. we need media we need accurate media we need uh, information that is not flawed and it's not fake as they say uh, we need the government and actually I'm very impressed and very honored to be here and see that you guys have a minister for artificial intelligence that Basically, I'm going to go back to Mexico where I'm friends with many of the people in the energy sector, including the Undersecretary of Energy, and I'm going to try to push that in Mexico. So hopefully we can copy the UAE and have a, such a visionary, uh, um, a visionary direction like you guys have. So the World Economic Forum makes us think about the future, and I think in the future, these multi-sector collaborations will be more and more important. So Harvard nowadays does a lot of industrial research. Our neighbors at MIT even more. But um, I think in the future, it will be even more. So, uh, Alan, you, you're a Mexican, you're a chemist, you're uh, at Harvard University, and now you're, you're at the forefront of, of what could be the future of advanced materials and energy, water, everything that is critical for off, off, you know, the world's uh, next 20, 30 years. How did you end up doing what you're doing? It's a good question. Um, I was a kid in Mexico... Um, and I competed in the so-called International Chemistry Olympiad. Another thing as beautiful as the World Economic Forum. People from all over the world go and compete. And when I saw... Was this when you were in high school? When I was in high school. And when I saw that I, may, I, I could make it. In Mexico, we have a phrase called, Si se puede. You can make it. We sing it to our soccer team. When I saw that I could make it, then I said, I'm going to do my PhD in the United States. And I keep the drive. Um because I grew up in a developing world. So I am now in the first world or, the, or advanced world. And, you know, the world is flattening. People think of Mexico as backwards sometimes. We are very, very, very exciting. Actually, I was just inviting you to come to Mexico. And I invite everybody in the UAE to come to Mexico. You will see that we're a very vibrant place with many things going on. Um, we have a lot of initiatives. Um, so I am very motivated to help the entire planet um, and I'm very motivated and the reason why I love the World Economic Forum I'm motivated about globalization we have to be friends across the globe to, 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 to stop all the tension that we have nowadays so these are the things that drive me up at night I want to have as much a diverse research group as I can I want to have as uh, um, and as much influence as I can in the world before I die yeah. Alan Asparoguzic from Harvard University thanks so much for your time thank you Mustafa for your time as well More Business Extra in just a moment, uh, but first let me tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. And Extra Time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or find us as always at thenational.ae. It is a show about the future, as I mentioned earlier. I had spoken to Alan Asparuguzic from Harvard, who talked about the future of energy. Now, related to, and also on its own a fascinating topic, is the future of mobility. Uh, Currently, the uh, Dubai International Motor Show is going on. Uh, Lots and lots of car manufacturers and other related industry companies are down there, consumers. It's a big show um, for the region and uh, generates a lot of interest. Uh, I'm very happy to say that down the line, I got to speak to Christian Soma, who's the managing director of Cadillac Middle East, who explained how a company like Cadillac with a storied history in the internal combustion engine is actually trying to lead the advance of the future of transport. 
Christian, uh, thanks for being with us. Um, I just have to say Cadillac is a company with a, a lot of history, a big legacy. I mean, founded 1902. Uh, it's owned by GM now. It's one of the Detroit big three. Yet it's a company that seems to be very much focused on the future of mobility, on the future of the car industry. And I know yourself, you, it's a subject that you've been looking at as well. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So this is uh, this is very much what you what you're saying is correct because uh, we are looking forward to the future. We are uh, admits a, a longer term plan, let's say a ten year plan for the resurgence of the Cadillac plant, and we are uh, right now in year three. So um, I think we have made great strides so far in uh, in bringing back Cadillac back to the pinnacle of premium, like we like to say. And uh, there's a lot to do in the future, but at the same time, we are so confident um, looking at what's, uh, what's ahead. We will uh, launch new vehicle lines in the, in the next uh, th- two years, uh, five of them in a, in a space of just two years. So uh, a lot to do and uh, looking forward. I mean, it's interesting to say you're launching vehicle lines because obviously the, these cars take a long time to develop. They're not a matter of a few months. So short-term right. industry trends, short-term consumer trends, uh, to a certain extent, do you have to end up scrambling to keep up with anything that changes, especially with technology being so disruptive at the moment? Yes, um, it's it's a really interesting field at the moment, and technology is disruptive, and we are seeing uh, ever ever greater uh, speeds of development in in the industry. Uh, at the same time, we are part of uh, GM, which is a, a powerhouse in bringing technologies to uh, to market, and uh, and Cadillac gets is uh, its fair share uh, from it. So, uh, what we have done in the past is uh, uh, balancing our portfolio again. Right now, we are a little bit more screwed towards uh, sedans, while we see that the market, especially also here in the Middle East, um, is uh, the SUV market is, uh, is ever popular. Uh, so we will see a more balanced portfolio for Cadillac in the future. And on the technology side, uh, I think we're spearheading some of the most exciting technologies, especially in the field of autonomous driving with our super cruise technology. And at the same time, also, we are launching uh, ride-sharing platforms or mobility platforms with our Book by Cadillac program that just got uh, launched earlier this year in New York. And we are now um, expanding this program to two more cities in the U.S. with Dallas and Los Angeles. And there's also a, a test phase currently going on in, in Munich, and um, we're also doing studies with our local partners here in the UAE to um, see what is feasible and how we can bring this program to uh, the region. Uh, that, that's fascinating that, that, you, that Cadillac is, uh, sorry, GM and Cadillac are developing um, these different uh, aspects, dealing with new technologies like ride sharing, like autonomous driving. And I wonder, does it mean you have to refocus on exactly what your business is because it must have seemed so many years that uh, you were selling cars but really now your your business is manufacturing cars and then delivering them or getting them on the road in the 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 way that people actually demand them to be so instead of maybe perhaps people owning their cars directly they'll now either be using ride apps or getting picked up or there'll be some kind of carpooling i mean that's all changed i mean how does that affect essentially your pure aspect of your business? I, I think um, the automotive industry in general is at the, um, at the point um, that where we'll see 
probably some of the most exciting changes in the last century, if I, I was to say, with all these new technologies um, coming uh, coming to life. Um, for us, it does, of course, uh, have uh, an impact on how we plan our business and how we uh, pan out our, our strategies, um, especially with those uh, mobility platforms um, booked by Cadillac. We, uh, we have seen in uh, our test phase in New York that um, all of those customers that were interested in signing up to the subscription-based program where you can um, uh, sign up for just one month without the hassles of a leasing program and at the same time get your vehicle delivered to you by a, a white cloth concierge service. Um, on one day you can drive an Escalade if you want to go to the mountains and the other day you can have a really nice sporty CTS uh, V-Series um, with up to 640 horsepower and that is really um, clicking with a younger generation of car buyers that um, we want to connect with and that share our passion. So rather than, than say, you know, owning one particular type of car and that's saying something about you or suiting your lifestyle, these millennials, the new generation who from week to week might be doing very different things, they want to be able to access the, the I guess, the vehicle that suits that particular activity rather than their overall life. Absolutely. And, uh, and this is a trend that um, we see with the millennials, um, but at the same time, also um, our current customers and uh, and fans uh, want to experience uh, something um, that uh, suits their very dynamic lifestyle. And uh, uh, if you have that flexibility, I think every one of us would uh, would love to join a program because everybody remembers the first couple of days when you get into a new car. Uh, think about it. If you could have that one or two times um, per month, how great is that? And in terms of, of the car industry being interlinked with a very important industry in this region, uh, the energy industry, and how you know the, everyone talks about this concept of peak demand and when when you know we will have peaked in terms of of oil and, and going forward, and now with hybrid cars, electric cars, the fact that maybe people won't own their own cars but will just find ways to to use them or share them, um, you know how how do you think that that impacts things in the Middle East uh, from your point of view as Cadillac and and GM? What kind of conversations do you have? with the energy industry um, we um, we are not directly um, talking to the energy industry but we are of course talking to uh, several other stakeholders and and the regulators and uh, just for that example uh, we're living in Dubai a very progressive city um, where we are always on the forefront of uh, of trends of, of global trends and um, even though Dubai is uh, um, in in growing through um, the the oil revenues in, in the past, you can see how this city has also successfully uh, diversified uh, itself. And uh, therefore, we are seeing also a lot of interest here in Dubai uh, in terms of electrification, um, different um, propulsion systems, and uh, also autonomous driving. And uh, that is very exciting to see. And how how do you feel uh, from Cadillac's point of view about the the different technologies that are competing? So we've got hybrid, we've got electric, then there's hydrogen fuel cells. I mean, is there is there room for all of them, or do do, do you anticipate a particular technology winning out? I personally think there is uh, there is room for uh, for most of them, and. Uh, 
um, you'll you'll see that the traditional combustion engines uh, will be there for uh, quite some time still. At the same time, um, GM and uh, Cadillac in specific are working hard to offer our customers a an alternative uh, that suits their lifestyle better. And uh, we have um, uh, hybrid vehicles in our portfolio. And at the same time, um, Mary Barra, our CEO and chairman of GM, just announced a couple of weeks ago that by the year 2023, GM will offer up to 20 uh, fully electrified vehicles and uh, Cadillac will uh, will get a good uh, good share of those. Uh, and it, you talk about you know room for technology and and before you're talking about autonomous driving um but, but there seems to be you know some worry about safety um when it comes to uh, artificial intelligence autonomous driving um safety has to be 100% it's not like other industries because of the nature of of mobility and how we're on the roads and there'll be so many vehicles so it, it, there has to be I know a lot of car companies are testing right now. A lot of other companies in the tech space are testing, you know, hundreds of hours to find out, you know, uh, you know how many accidents there are per kilometer or whatever the metric is. But is it not making everyone nervous about essentially unleashing driverless cars on society, given, given the risks? Safety is the absolute number one priority for General Motors and, uh, and Cadillac. And, uh, uh, we are um, committed to 100% safety and make no compromise on that. And um, what is what is really interesting uh, to see was that um, we have uh, just invited up to 85 journalists to um, join us for a Cadillac Super Cruise coast-to-coast drive in our uh, CT6 with um, the uh, semi-autonomous um, feature of, of Super Cruise. There were up to 85 journalists that uh, took uh, this uh, journey from New York to Los Angeles in in um, in stages in more than 10 CT6. And what we got as a feedback was that the system is not only really sophisticated and very um, very much of a precision system. It most of all it was also confidence instilling, and that was really good to see for us that um, people grow their confidence when they feel that a technology actually works, that they are safe in the car. Because let's face it, for us humans, it is not natural to get into a car and uh, take the hands off a steering wheel and uh, let technology take over on the highway. But once you've done that and you feel that you are safe and the technology takes over, that fuels that confidence. And that is really important um, that we do that with our consumers uh, because only then it will also be a commercial success. And that is needed to develop the technology even further. Uh, While you were speaking, you reminded me of what the metric was for the autonomous uh, vehicles. It was how often... Often uh, the human tries to take control back from the car, and so it, obviously partly that's to do with you know how the this, the AI system is working. But then, as you rightly point out, it's about confidence. So when we get to a point where we become used to it, where we become natural, uh, to be able to hand over that control, and and I guess. Um, I'm finding out that in all these disruptive technologies that the obstacle tends to be us, tends to be people. You know, the robots are very happy to go on as they are, but it's really our attitudes and our sentiment. And there's got to be an idea of at what point does the car industry get ahead of consumer trends and begin to lead that? And to what benefit is it to a company like Cadillac and, and the broader GM group to develop autonomous vehicles? Is it, is it a matter of ultimately just selling more cars? Is that what will happen? I, I, I think this, this is not the ultimate goal, obviously, to, to sell more cars. There, there are wider societal benefits 
um, with um, uh, with a technology like super cruise or fully autonomous cars. Um, we have a vision of uh, zero congestion, um, zero crashes, and that is supported by uh, autonomous vehicles. Um, once autonomous vehicles are on the road, um, let's face it, a computer or um, a technology that uh, can do drive autonomously uh, will be a lot safer than uh, a human being that is more error prone. Um, but at the same time, it is important that, especially from a Cadillac perspective, um, we want the driver to always, in this current phase, to be able to take over whenever you want to. So if you're going on your mundane highway drive, maybe you want to uh, let the technology take over while you still pay attention to the street. Um, but then if you're going on a nice coastal or mountain road, um, it is still this romantic, exhilarating, um, nice attribute of driving a car yourself and where um, you feel the performance and acceleration. It's interesting. Uh, you talk about how um, it depends on what we're doing. And, and if I if I go to the UAE or the wider Gulf region as an example. Uh, obviously, we drive to commute everywhere at the moment, uh, predominantly. I mean, I know some people use public transport, of course, but the majority of people are using their cars or in a car on a daily basis. And then we have our own leisure driving. And some people obviously go out into the desert and they enjoy uh, using their SUVs to do dune bashing, etc., or going for nice drives in different parts of the beautiful country. But, um, you know, when it comes down to the UAE, it's kind of half a developed nation like the US or, or somewhere in Western Europe. It's also half um, a kind of frontier or emerging nation like some other parts of the world. And so yeah. it must be you must be dealing with very, very different consumer demands or customer demands when it comes to the kind of vehicles that you're offering. I mean, to what extent will autonomous or electric or um, you know your, your, your ride-sharing platform begin to dominate uh, your business in this region? And, and how long before it does, do you think? Yeah, that's, um, that's a very good question. And, and like I was saying before, I think it is all about in creating options and alternatives to the current portfolio and uh, to the current technologies that are available. That is what uh, is super exciting for us, that we can offer that to uh, our customers, that they can try it out, that they can experience what it really uh, feels like if you are on a mobility platform like Book by Cadillac or if you're going in a, in a um, super cruise-assisted CT6 um, or if you're going in an electrified vehicle. So um, not sure yet um, when that will really dominate the business, um, but uh, for sure the industry will see some exciting change in the near future. Uh, it's the first day of the Dubai Motor Show. You're speaking to us from there. Uh, you, you've put some of your vehicles uh, on display for people who are visiting the show. I mean, wh what, what are the most popular ones? What are people looking at? What are they interested in? Do you have one of those concept cars that tend to show up at the, at the motor shows too? Yes, absolutely. For us, the absolute star of the show is the new Escala concept uh, that is on a turning pedestal in the middle of our beautiful Cadillac stand. And uh, that is what is attracting uh, the most interest from our visitors to, uh, to the show. The Escala concept is a concept car, but it's not merely to show something eye-catching. It is really a window into the future of how Cadillac will design its future cars. And uh, the um, product expansion that I mentioned earlier um, with 
five new vehicle lines in the space of just two years from 2019 onwards, all of these cars will have bits and pieces of that nice and beautiful sculpted uh, Escala design language, not only from the exterior, but also from the interior. And then, of course, we also have our ever-popular Cadillac Escalade on the stand, and um, that car is for us still super important as uh, the SUV. It's pretty iconic, the Escalade. It is. Um, and it, it is. It's a, big, it's a big vehicle. I mean, you think there'll always be demand for, for such a presence on the road? I, I personally think that, uh, especially in this region, uh, people are looking for uh, cars that uh, can uh, carry the family and um, can can um, you can do for like um, a lot of stuff in your in on your free time and on your weekend and um, carry a lot of things that, that you do either for water sports or if you go out to uh, the desert for for camping. At the same time, I understand that also consumer preferences change and uh, uh, therefore we are launching a new. Um, entry across over the XT4 just early 2019, and so we'll have everything um, for for every customer taste. Uh, but um, rest assured, the Cadillac Escalade is still the most popular uh, car in our portfolio, and uh, we are foreseeing that this will stay like this for a while. When I was a kid uh, and um, in my 40s now, uh, each car brand had their own sort of unique uh, vehicles aligned with it. So you know, Mercedes Benz delivered sedans at a certain luxury level uh, for example and and you know Cadillac now for a long time has been associated with luxury and 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 sort of you know those big cars on the road whether they're their big sedans or the Escalade but now it seems like all the big brands are delivering vehicles at every single entry point and first of all that must be really hard to kind of be a jack of all trades um, when, it, when it comes to, to being out there in the market, that, that idea of being a speciality. But it also seems to be necessary as everybody encroaches into their own particular uh, competitor speciality. Are you finding that that's a challenge or an opportunity? Uh, I personally think this is an opportunity. And yes, it's right. Uh, there are a lot of car manufacturers that go into every niche that is that is possible. At the same time, um, the Cadillac portfolio is pretty straightforward. We have our Cadillac Escalade, our flagship, and um, the XT5, our new crossover, and the sedans that we offer. Um, but what we want to portray also, and this is what we're talking to our customers and fans, we are more than just a car brand. We want to create a brand world um, that is seamless. And that is why we are talking to a younger generation of car buyers and also why we are supporting initiatives such as the STEP Conference, which is the region's large, largest entrepreneur convention. And also on the art space, um, we are bringing for the very first time next month uh, the Letters to Andy Warhol exhibition to uh, Dubai. And um, that is a one-of-a-kind event that celebrates the life of uh, one of the most prominent American artists uh, who actually put Cadillac in the center of a lot of his works. Um, and that is really great to see how we can uh, connect history. Um, Cadillac has such a uh, pride um, for in, in history and at the same time also this promising future with the, with the new vehicle lineup. Uh, for, forgive me, we never met face to face, Christian. But I, I'm assuming you're you're a re- European rather than an American. Am I correct in that? In that is correct. That? I'm, I, that's correct. 
Uh, I'm from Germany. You're German, right. I suspected as much, but I, I didn't want to accuse you of being German just yet because uh, it, it relates to my question, though. It, it sounds like from everything you're saying that Cadillac is very much working to be a, a global brand and not just you know one of the Detroit big three, one of the U.S. iconic brands, which it has been, of course. So as a, mm-hmm. as a German uh, you know, leading Cadillac in the Middle East, um, do, do you feel that 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 essence of it it's become a brand that is not of one region but is but is actually focused on what appeals to their customers wherever they are yes and as a true luxury global brand that is exactly what we want to establish and uh, we have we have started this journey about 3 years ago where we uh, sat down and said um what do we need to do in order to make Cadillac really a truly a global luxury brand and um that means also that our customers who travel the globe, that they um, see a Cadillac uh, showroom in China, that they see one in the U.S., and that they see one in the Middle East, um, that this, um, this speaks to them and that they can uh, connect with it in the same way they would connect with it in, in the U.S. And Cadillac is uh, one of the Detroit-based companies. At the same time, um, we have moved our global headquarters um, three years ago from Detroit to New York. We have uh, set up um, the and an own team that is um, um, exclusively only looking after after Cadillac and uh, also in the different regions like here in the Middle East um, we have carved out the the Cadillac department of the General Motors uh, team for people to really only concentrating and focusing on developing the brand Cadillac and uh, bringing this brand back to the pinnacle of premium. Christian Soma, Managing Director of Cadillac Middle East. Thanks so much for your time. Good luck for the rest of the Motor Show. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. This was an episode of the Business Extra podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it. You can read our fuller coverage on the national.ae. Of course, download this and other podcasts at Apple Podcasts or however you listen to your audio content and, of course, at the National's website. Now, please join us again next week. Thanks to Kevin Jeffers, our producer. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. Goodbye.